traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place and easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code contrarian at checkout to take advantage of this free offer. Now on to today's episode. Ethan Wydell, a senior analyst over at Ironhold Capital Management. We are here to talk about the case for India and Indian stocks. Now, this is an interesting country, a very interesting market. And from a contrarian perspective, of course, we are interested in this because it has not really gone anywhere this year, while the U.S. stocks have uh, advanced quite a bit. Now, there are some concerns about India right now over rising coronavirus cases, which is probably weighing on investors' sentiment quite a bit. But your firm, if I'm not mistaken, focuses on Indian securities. But before we get there and, and maybe just start and tell me a little bit about the case for Indian stocks in general. Absolutely. So 
here at Ironhold Capital, we invest really heavily in both the United States and India. And while we are value investors, we're not really macro investors. We do think that the macroeconomic positioning of India is really extraordinary and the long-term tailwinds for the whole country are really conducive to growth. For one, it the country has a GDP growth of about six to seven percent. It's the largest democracy in the world, the second most populous country in the world. And it has a massive amount of inefficiency in the stock market. And so it's a great place for professional investors to look for ideas, COVID okay. notwithstanding. Yeah, we'll get we'll get around to the COVID a bit, but let's talk more a little more big picture first. Now, it, India has traditionally been uh, kind of not really a manufacturing economy. Uh, it is domestic consumer based. But talk to me about some of the transitions that are going on there right now. Absolutely. Well, actually, about 50% of the Indian workforce is still agrarian, okay. still employed in the agricultural sector. And while we've seen that decline recently, um, since the 90s, when India first began to really open itself up to the free market and to um, a more deregulated economy, we've seen a little bit of a shift away from uh from agriculture and more towards manufacturing and the service economy. Um, but it's, it's really an interesting economy because so much of the workforce is still agrarian. Like by comparison, uh, only 2% of the U.S. is employed in agriculture. Um, so we see this very agrarian economy, which is like totally on the opposite end of the spectrum from the high-tech service economy that occupies you know, the other side of the Indian economy. But recently with more efforts to sort of shift away from this agrarian sector, uh, we are seeing higher growth in the service economy, higher growth in the manufacturing economy. And those are starting to become competitive with other emerging economies like China. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. Now, one, one, you know, you might call it a disadvantage that democracies have is bureaucracy. And in India, as anybody who's ever been there, who's, and I have, uh, not, not that much, but a little bit, and there, there is actually a lot of red tape. Um, and for an, a, a developing economy, there is, there's a lot of bureaucracy. And I know that Modi had uh, his initiative Make in India a couple of years ago, which I guess has kind of undermined some of the trends that you're talking about has led, led to more of this manufacturing. But infrastructure, of course, is still a problem. And like I said, with the red tape, it's hard to get a lot of infrastructure projects going. We've seen that here in the U.S., of course, uh, much more so. But what, uh, what, what can you say about that and, and that being kind of one of the big barriers to really letting India get up to, to full speed to where it would really be cranking on all cylinders? Well, it's true. And that is a concern. Um, I think that that's definitely a, a concern for all democracies. Mm -hmm. India historically has been somewhat more regulated mm -hmm. than um, the U.S. and you know certain economies that we see in, in Europe. But the long-term trend tends to be towards deregulation. 
And I think that the major thing that you get for an emerging market with their democratic structure, well, you might have to put up with some red tape and you might have to put up with some regulation and uh, you'll have to put up with uh, oftentimes some government ownership and a lot of public companies, which we generally see as a negative. Mm. Uh, what you get is more reliable governance. Um, it's more predictable where with China, with the communist government and not to talk too much about politics, mm. but uh, we find that it's just unpredictable. You don't know when the government is going to, uh, you know, totally bar large companies from operating or from operating fully. Uh, with India, you see more free market forces. And because of that, we can actually make better predictions about where a company is going to go in the future. Um, okay. So okay. that allows us to navigate some of the, the red tape and the regulations better. Interesting. And you, you spoke of it, the, the securities market there and, and investing in India. And I want to talk in a little bit about some of the ideas you have for investors to, to the best way for them to access it. But, but the, one of the ways in which the regulation has, has been seen is in the securities market. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very regulated. I know from covering the hedge fund sector uh, in Asia, not much in India because there aren't any hedge funds there because it's shorting at least was until recently, I think, uh, you know, completely illegal, mm -hmm. um, which is not unique to India. I mean, there's a lot of other, other countries that have that, but uh, there is a thriving options market. I know that, but, but um, as far as the regulations and, and the, the, again, the red tape that's keeping investors on the sidelines and such, is that something that is also being worked on or that you've seen? Yes. Um, one of the major sort of barriers to global entry into the Indian market is that historically you basically had to be a Indian citizen or a person of Indian descent mm. um, living abroad. And that's still the case for individual investors. Like it's very hard if, you know, I want to go mm -hmm. and, you know, open a, a trading account in India. It's, it would be very hard for me to do that. Um, but what they have done more recently is start to allow in more foreign institutional investors. Uh, and this has sort of allowed for more direct investment from the United States and other foreign countries that are interested in getting in on the Indian space. For everybody else though, there are a number of index funds and ETFs that retail investors can, yeah, put their money into. Interesting. And so what, what yeah, I mean, we're obviously not, not in the business of, of recommending any, any individual stocks here, but as far as these ETFs, are they a fair gauge of the broader market, you would say, like if, if like a retail investor in the U.S. just wanted to get access to the Indian stock market and the Indian economy, is buying the iShares is that is that a good option or, or what? What? Sure. Um, well, I think that the BSC Sensex and the Nifty Fifty are really the two uh, two best collection of securities to look at. Um, they serve as a pretty good alternative to investing in the S&P 500. Um, mm -hmm. They serve kind of a similar function as being an index of the largest stocks in the Indian economy. Um, and overall, we've seen, we've seen good returns. Uh, you know, COVID notwithstanding, of course, we've uh, really seen COVID cases just 
spiked terribly in India in the last few months. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, we see that as a short-term issue and something that the Indian economy and Indian companies are going to overcome mm-hmm. with time. Okay, cool. Yeah, and speak to that a little bit. I mean, the, the headlines that we've seen here are all about this you know, disaster cases for uh, rising coronavirus cases and, and deaths and such and lack of distribution on vaccines and all these other things. I know that headline writers need to do their thing, but what, what is the real, like from, from your guys' perspective, like how bad is it and, and do you see things getting better and how soon? Well, it's definitely a concern. And from a um, sort of more humanitarian view, it's really troubling to see that only, I think, 8% of Indian population has received one vaccine. Um, From a more business-oriented and fundamental perspective, we've seen most companies have already adjusted. And we're seeing the fundamentals pick back up. And despite the uptick in cases, um, business is starting to go back to usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we are confident that for the investor, it isn't a long-term worry. Cool. So maybe it is a good, good opportunity to buy then at this point, considering. I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always a ton of inefficiency in the Indian market. You know, there are in the U S there are fewer than 4,000 publicly listed companies that are watched by, I think, over 10,000 active managing, management funds um, between mutual funds and hedge funds. Whereas in India, there are almost 8,000 companies that are followed by fewer than 500 wow. active funds. So really, there are fewer eyes on the market. Mm-hmm. And for us, that means more opportunities to um, find inefficiency, to find good buy-in points, uh, and to exploit any sort of inefficiencies that we're able to find. Nice. Very cool. And within that, what talk to me about some of the sectors maybe that you're most excited about within the Indian market. Absolutely. Well, one sector that we're tremendously excited about is finance, um, financial markets, mutual funds in particular. And part of that is because of discretionary income, which has really quadrupled every time the GDP has doubled. Um, we basically see that there are more and more Indian citizens that are interested in investing in the stock market and investing in mutual funds. And the popularity as a percent of savings has doubled just in the last five years or so. Hmm. Um, so overall, we're seeing like a 15 to 20% annual growth in the industry in general. And we're seeing just a massive increase in the the popularity and the sophistication of these mutual funds very cool and now are these these are managed by local companies yes yeah as so it's not like and it's not like fidelity is there or vanguard or, or any of these guys or maybe there are uh-huh. um and there is some international corporate presence right. in india in the financial space um, we see it particularly in investment banking, but as far as mutual funds con- are concerned, uh, there is or the, the largest ones and uh, the most successful, most growing ones are Indian managed. Uh-huh. Um, 
And, and these are public companies in India? Some of them are. Uh, HDFC, um, not recommending any particular securities, yeah, course, yeah. Uh, is the largest publicly one, publicly held one right now. I think I have to disclose that Ironhold has a position in it. Mm -hmm. uh, SBI is the largest in the country, and it plans to go public in the next year or so. In, in India? Or, uh, in India, yeah. Uh -huh. Now, some of these, I thought HDFC used to have an ADR. Do they still have an ADR? Um, we, we, is this, yeah. I, I, they might. They might. Mm -hmm. But you guys uh, buy the local shares. Like, you know. we, we buy the local shares, so we don't follow ADRs so much. Um, that's another way, actually, that individual investors can get in on certain Indian companies is mm -hmm. through ADRs. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not my area of expertise, but it's yeah. certainly an option. Yeah, I just checked. HDFC does have a ADR. It's HDB is this ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, that oh, we, we should say that is the bank as a whole, which obviously would include the asset management unit or not. They're actually separately traded. Um, India, okay. So we the, don't know. All right. Yeah, the bank spun off the mutual fund. Uh, okay. um, so the mutual fund is independently traded. The bank is also a great company and they sure. have um, a really wide distribution network, which actually benefits the mutual fund. Uh -huh. um, but the mutual fund is what we're really seeing growing explosively. Uh -huh. Very cool. Uh, India is known, obviously, for, for some of its uh, tech prowess um, and IT. And we probably all know, you know, programmers who are there or from there or something. Uh, is, is that one, is that an area, you haven't talked about that yet, interestingly enough. IT services and things like that, is that something that, that, that is uh, also interesting from an investing standpoint? Certainly. Well, it is a really quickly growing sector and it's one of uh, India's strongest sectors, but we're also finding that it's one of the most popular in mm. the stock market. So it receives more analyst coverage. It uh, receives a lot more foreign investment. Mm. And we find that it's a little bit less inefficient. We're actually really interested in um, the more basic like manufacturing, uh -huh. uh, hard, uh, hard service type industries. Uh -huh. Very cool. Oh, that's really interesting. All right, Ethan Wydell, I want to take a short break and come back and ask you some more questions if that's all right. But Absolutely. Let's, let's first pause here uh, to get a word in from our sponsors. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. So do not touch the dial. Don't go anywhere. And to become a premium subscriber, you can sign up at the website contrarian.supercast.tech. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. 
I need to tell you about Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can absolutely recommend them. Uh, their research is different. They do not cherry pick positive or negative charts, nor do they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. They have an intellectually consistent approach. They grew through a consistent set of relevant data, put them through the same consistent set of frameworks, and then summarize the whole thing in a checklist with a concise written summary. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer, which is a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website MerckResearch.com, sign up for one of the subscriptions, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout to take advantage of this limited offer. That's MerckResearch.com, M-E-R. Okay. All right. Welcome back. Ethan Wydell here uh, from Ironhold uh, Capital Management. Ethan, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guest a little bit about his or her background, personal and more professional background, and how he or she came to this stage of his or her career. And uh, so I'm curious how you, uh, you say you are in Texas presently, but curious how you came to investing, how you came to Ironhold Capital, and how you came to focus on India. Right. Well, um, I graduated from Columbia University um, with I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> with a uh, major in economics and psychology. And originally, I kind of went into the field of psychology and uh, was was more interested in that side. And through one of my classes that I was taking um, called thinking and decision-making, we were starting to talk about sort of collective irrationality as it's juxtaposed with this very economic idea of like everybody making optimal decisions. Hmm. And, you know, coming from a more psychology oriented background, I was totally unfamiliar with econ. Um, Like I had taken one class in high school and like that was, that was it. And so I really didn't even, register that there was this whole body of academics who are thinking about everything in terms of like mathematical rationality and how that should actually play out in the real world. And from there, I kind of discovered the stock market and it's, you know, this place where there is so much irrationality and there's so much inefficiency and, you know, not everybody actually behaves as they're supposed to. And for me, it was kind of the perfect collision of ideas. Hmm. So that sort of set me on my trajectory uh, with Ironhold Capital. I have had the pleasure of learning under uh, Siddharth Singhai, our mm-hmm. chief investment officer, who Previous guest was a guest on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he's really the master of the Indian side of the stock market. Yeah. Uh, it was something that I was unfamiliar familiar with, with at the time. Yeah, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from him and uh, learned a lot about India as a country and as an economy and how to make money in the stock market there. Hmm. Have you been there yet? I have not. Mm. Cool. Well, yes, I need to go. Then. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. It's, it's great experience. No, no question. As any of our listeners can attest who have traveled there, I'm sure. Um, and we actually have a lot of listeners in India as well, but okay. That's really cool. So it's interesting. This idea that you talk about, about the irrational um, nature of crowds and which is something that is unique. It's, it's not unique, actually, but it's, it is a one characteristic of stock markets 
which is interesting because another one is that it's supposed to be purely rational and economic. So you have these kind of competing uh, things. And, and as a contrarian investor, of course, the, the MO is that the narrative is, is often, not always, but very often false. And that there is some place to take, out, to take advantage of it and, and to book profits if you do it right. Obviously, timing is everything. Uh, but so that's interesting. That, so let's go back to the to this idea of uh, you're, you're investing and investing in India and some of the sectors that you mentioned you were excited about. And you talked about manufacturing. You talked about asset management, mutual funds. Uh, what else is there? Well, um, one very niche segment that we actually like quite a lot is ferro alloys, which are part of the steel manufacturing process. And steel is generally like the low growth of low growth industries. Uh Um, Really, you know, you talk about investor narrative and like you rarely hear much positive investor narrative about steel, Mm -hmm. but we see in India that there is, um, it's actually a, reasonably growing industry steel is in general and um, these ferro alloys are in particular uh, we see india is becoming a really viable distributor uh-huh. of these metals um, compared to historically like china and the us and uh, other countries that developed that area uh-huh. earlier interesting what are what are their what are these metals used in? Is it I assume construction and and right, just everything steel's used in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a component for making steel. Mm-hmm. So uh, one particular company that we really like is called Mython Alloys. M Y T H O N. M A I T H A N. Okay. Um, and the company is the largest. Uh, producer of silicon or um sorry manganese alloy okay um and manganese alloy is you know used in a variety of steel production but basically it is the largest producer it's the lowest cost producer and it's been capturing market share from its competitors which are all really enticing um and furthermore there has been very little enthusiasm for it so far we have roughly, you know, seen the uh, stock price mirror earnings, but not nearly with the same enthusiasm that we see for other growing companies. And I think that that's largely because of its positioning in this little niche in Indian steel manufacturing. Wow, that's fascinating. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit Contrarian supercast.tech for more information. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote here. There's, I've been talking to a guy here in Connecticut about buying a house, and he says that demand for houses in, in this area is, is through the roof, presumably mm-hmm. because people are, are leaving New York. But he says, interesting, and this is interesting to, to bring us back here to, to this point, is that new home construction again, the demand is there for new homes. And so there's these developers and everybody else who wants to build it, but there is a backlog of materials. 
And so there is a real issue apparently, and this is according to what, what this guy's saying. Um, and he's not a Wall Street guy at all. He's just, a, he's just a local real estate guy. But there's apparently a backlog of things that used in construction that are kind of pre preventing a lot of these developers from going as, as quickly ahead as they would like. So there you go. That would, that would also speak to, I would think, this company's bottom line um, Interesting. over the near term. But that's just an anecdote. I mean, who knows if it, what, what that even means. It could just be here yeah. in Connecticut too. I mean, who the hell knows, right? Yeah, so... Absolutely. And I, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, in general, the steel industry tends to mirror the uh, overall uh, GDP growth Yeah. Um, as, you know, there's more development of railroads and mm -hmm. homes and skyscrapers and, and everything, you know, that is pretty directly proportional with demand for steel. Um, so there's a little bit of growth from there, not a tremendous amount, but what we find really interesting about this company is that it's actually gaining market share and India in uh -huh. general is growing this sector as well. So it has yeah. two forces of growth on that side. And is most of the market, is most of its market domestic or versus exports? No, um, uh -huh. actually about 70% of this company exports globally uh -huh. Wow. Uh, by revenue, 70% by revenue. Um, uh-huh. Mostly to the U.S. and Europe, I would assume. U.S., Europe, um, Australia, I think. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, all over. Huh. Interesting. I mean, this is certainly something that we we should be paying more attention to because, and especially nowadays, as you hear so much about there not being any investment opportunities with markets being so overvalued. Uh, okay, that's that's a that's a great one. Uh, anything else? Yeah. Um, well, I think that. The idea of there not being very good opportunities because of um, overvalued, the overvalued market and everything being really hot is true to an extent. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you're willing to look in just these really niche corners that aren't very popular, there are still a lot of companies that have yet to achieve their potential on their upside. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, let's go back to the the mutual fund business in India. And you, you guys know a lot about this HDFC uh, company and, and its asset management uh, unit in, in particular. So tell me, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, so as I think I mentioned before, um, discretionary income really grows in a compound way, even relative to just GDP. And India has like six to 7% GDP growth annually, we have seen the mutual fund industry basically quadruple, I believe, every decade. It's really, really extraordinary growth. And so these companies, which are just starting to go public, by the way, uh -huh. um, face a tremendous amount of upside because only 2 to 3% of Indian citizens actually hold shares in the stock market um, compared to you know 50%. In the United States, uh, we see this adoption rate really starting to pick up. And as discretionary income continues to increase and uh, GDP per capita and like the lower wages of lower wage earners uh, begin to increase, we really anticipate to see more and more people starting to invest in mutual funds. They're picking up in um, assets under management. They're picking up in popularity as a percentage of people's household savings. Mm. And 
we think these are really great tailwinds. Um, mm. HDFC Asset Management Company, which is the uh, spun off mutual fund branch of HDFC Bank, mm. is probably our favorite example of this. Um, they have a great distribution network. They managed to reach out to uh, citizens from all across the country, and they have been capturing market share from some of their competitors. Um, we were able to pick it up in 2020 as a part of our portfolio because of the COVID crash and also because it was surpassed by SBI as the largest um, as the largest mutual fund in the country by assets under management, which we don't see as a huge concern. Um, it's very difficult for just anybody to set up a mutual fund. And so we don't think that there's a tremendous amount of competitive risk. Okay. Um, there are only maybe five or so serious competitors in the market. So we get this kind of oligopolistic market structure where HDFC is at the top um, or very near the top. And considering all of the growth tailwinds that the company faces, we think that it's the kind of company that can compound over the long run. Nice. That sounds great. I mean, it sounds like a perfect mix because you have a barriers to entry and a huge total addressable market. Exactly. <laughs> right. And and then the net, the network, the distribution network to get it. I mean, that's one of the things anybody who's worked at mutual funds knows that's one of the ways that, you know, these mutual funds are able to grow is through their distribution uh, network. That's really interesting. Right. And having the um, HDFC bank to mm -hmm. help foster that is really a powerful force mm -hmm. in favor of this company. Hmm. What about M&A in India? Is uh, now are there there are limits? I would assume to international companies coming in there and buying local companies. Um, do you know anything about that? I'm not aware of a tremendous amount of uh, international M&A activity. Yeah, yeah. I I do imagine that there are limits to it. I know that there were right. strict limits until the 90s. Sure, sure. But as the government has really drifted more towards free market economics. It has picked up a little bit. Um, we do see a lot of M&A domestically. Okay. Um, we, we see a lot of instances of, you know, companies acquiring smaller companies and um, mergers, consolidations. Right. Uh, it's not still at the level that we see in the United States where, you know, it's like a core fundament of corporate business, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, but it's absolutely a consideration. Mm -hmm. And we also see uh, investment banks starting to take an international presence there where they yeah. facilitate this M&A process. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's really interesting. Okay, cool. Maybe in closing, if you could tell our listeners about where they could find out more about you. Um, I know you're pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm not sure about the other social networks or the website. Uh, yeah. Where, where, how can people find you? And the sure. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, they can find Ironhold Capital on LinkedIn and they can reach out to us at ironholdcapital.com. Cool. Ironholdcapital.com. Very easy to remember. I know you guys also have a podcast and a video cast, right? That you guys we do. Leaders in business and investing. Exactly. Um, slightly different scope. We talk to um, investment professionals. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's on. that's on YouTube more, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It's on YouTube. Uh, we also are also podcast. on Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Same as me. Yeah. 
Very cool. All right. Well, Ethan Wydell, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Thank you to Ironhold Capital. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.